This is Inside Politics. I'm Steve Harrison. Today's guest is someone who's had a sudden rise in North Carolina politics. The time is for patriots in this nation to stand up and reclaim who we are as Americans. To no longer let CNN and ABC and CBS and all those leftists on the other side of the aisle from us define who we are as Americans, as patriots, as Republicans. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson is one of the most divisive political figures in the state. He has a book out called We Are the Majority, The Life and Passions of a Patriot. We'll discuss his book and his politics. Some of what he says in this episode is sure to offend some listeners on issues like abortion and LGBTQ rights, even the Civil Rights Act. We felt like it was an important conversation to have because of his position and his interest in running for another office. Some would like him to run for Congress. His sights are on running for governor in two years. First, co-hosts Jim Morrill and Tim Funk join me now. Hey, guys. Hey, how hey, are you? So what do you guys want to hear from the lieutenant governor? What do you want to learn? Well, uh, you know, usually when you're running for higher office, you you sort of appeal to the base in, you know, in the primary and then you go you moderate a little bit for the general election. I think I think the lieutenant governor might be accelerating that. He might uh, already be kind of moderating some of his uh, red meat that he's throwing out there. And uh, this book, I think, presents a narrative that I think is a little more palatable to general election voters, perhaps. You know, we're talking about a guy here who's, who's risen faster than almost anybody in North Carolina politics a couple of years ago before 2020. He was, he was virtually unknown. He... Uh, got prominent in the Republican primary for lieutenant governor that year and won over a crowded field. And now he's talking about running for governor uh, in just a couple of years. And so I think a lot of people, number one, don't know him. But um, and number two, people are interested in who he really is. Yeah. And I think just kind of one other thing that's interesting, in addition to that really rapid rise, you know, he comes doesn't kind of come with that kind of party infrastructure and handlers and people telling him what to do. And so sometimes that's good because you go with your gut and he wins and he won the election. But sometimes that's bad when you don't moderate. But I think to, to Tim's point, I think there's a little bit of an effort to kind of tone things down a little bit, shift a little bit to the middle. And we'll, we'll see. It's interesting, though. He's kind of been embraced by the mega world. He gave this speech about gun rights in 2018 and it went viral. And that's really what fueled his political rise. Now he's speaking at CPAC, the conservative group in Texas. He's on the board of the National Rifle Association. On the back of his book, he's he's got these uh, rave reviews, uh, blurbs from Wayne LaPierre, the head of uh, NRA, Candace Owens, who's sort of the queen of the mega uh, social media, and Ted Nugent, uh, Donald Trump's favorite rock and roller. So he's been accepted outside the boundaries almost of North Carolina. And I think now he's going to try to focus a little bit more on the voters in this state. You guys have covered North Carolina politics longer than I have. Has there ever been a lieutenant governor with this high of a profile who makes this much news? Can't think of any right now. No, the lieutenant governor actually used to have a lot of power uh, back when the Democrats ran it. Then Republicans uh, elected Jim Gardner in, uh, I think, what, 92, 98. And so they took all the power away from the lieutenant governor. So it's more a job of you know, he's got all the time in the world to go out and give speeches and get his name idea. It's kind of a place to run for governor, I think, anymore. 
So let's get to it with Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. He spent much of his career in the furniture industry and was a political unknown until he delivered this speech to the Greensboro City Council in 2018 as it was considering canceling a gun show following the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. I'm going to come down here to this city council and raise hell just like these loonies from the left do until you listen to the majority of the people in this city. And I am the majority. The majority of the people in this city are law-abiding. And they follow the law. And they want their constitutional right to be able to bear, to bear arms. Two years later, Robinson was elected lieutenant governor. And now he's the author of We Are the Majority, The Life and Passions of a Patriot. Welcome, Lieutenant Governor. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me here. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. So uh, I want to start. The opening chapter of your book is called The Little Red House, where you grew up in East Greensboro. Your family was poor. You said your air conditioner was rain. There were mice and rats in the house and that you would sometimes chase those mice into an industrial fan in one of the windows. Tell us a little bit more about what that was like growing up. Well, you know, I talk about that time and, you know, looking back on, I bet if I, I, I would imagine if I could go back as an adult and actually see those conditions now, I would probably be pretty petrified. You know, it would probably make my toes curl. But at the time, you know, being a child, I didn't know any better. And uh, when I look back on those days, I don't remember so much of the bad times as I do the good. My brothers and sisters and I, we had a fantastic time growing up. Uh, we were very close-knit, very close together. Uh, my mom saw to it that we we were. And uh, we had some very good times despite the fact that we grew up in uh, somewhat extreme poverty. Well, let's fast forward a bit to that speech we heard earlier, the speech about gun rights for the Greensboro City Council. That essentially launched your political career. And I, from what you wrote, nothing has been the same for you since then, right? That's right. It just, it, you know, from the moment I get, delivered that speech, it's like my life just took this huge turn. I mean, I, I mean, literally, I went home, uh, that went to bed that night, and when I woke up the next day, it started, and it just has not stopped. You know, I thought it would take this trajectory that many uh, viral videos may take, but it just never did. It just continues to grow, continues to inspire people, and we just thank God every day uh, that it is. So uh, I want to move on to some of the political issues that are important to you that you mention often in the book. And I want to start with abortion. Um, in the book, you write that you're very open about some of the things that you've done in your life. But mm -hmm. in the book, you know, you don't mention that before you and your wife were married, she had an abortion, even though you posted about that in social media. And, it, mm -hmm. you know, there were a lot of news stories about it earlier this year. Why not? Why didn't you go there? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is in the book. I think we we did include that in the book, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm not mistaken, that is in there, uh, and uh, we we wanted to make sure that it was. It, and uh, if it's not, it's an extreme oversight. It should be in it because uh, uh, we intended to add that to it. But uh, I don't have a problem discussing that with people at all. The only reason why I haven't discussed it up to now is the privacy issue with my wife. Uh, but uh, I think it's very important for people who have been through the situation that my wife and I have been through uh, dealing with that issue to speak up. Because uh, when you talk about we're talking about abortion, you know, the one thing that I've come to realize more than anything is a, we have turned this into such a political issue that we have forgotten about the, the personal and spiritual uh, part aspect of this issue. And we are never uh, going to fully deal with this issue. 
and change this issue until we start dealing with those two aspects, the personal and spiritual aspect of, of abortion. And that's one of the things moving forward that we're going to focus on heavily is reaching out to those people who are dealing with those issues that my wife and I uh, dealt with and uh, dealing with those people who are wrestling with those decisions and, and getting them to understand it. You know, abortion, we don't believe is the answer. The answer is to build a society where people are are happy to have children and feel like they're empowered to have children. Well, maybe it, it, maybe I was wrong. I read it. I didn't don't remember seeing it. But uh, to continue on the topic of abortion, um, you wrote in the book that if you don't want to hear about rape and incest because you say that. One percent of abortions are due to those factors, and that, but I'll say right. that, you know the flip side of that is that one percent is a, of a big number is still a pretty big number. Mm-hmm. And what do you say to a woman who was raped and, and she wants to terminate the pregnancy? Uh, I, I would say that that's not necessarily my decision. Uh, and when I talk about my opinion about abortion, that is just it. It is my opinion. And when we talk about these complicated issues. Uh, I want to come to the table with my opinion, but I also want others there with their opinions. And and only through a a thoughtful conversation where there's give and take and where we listen to each other do I believe that we can come to a consensus on what the law should be concerning abortion. Now, the law is one thing, but my firm assertion is this, that the way that we combat abortion, again, is by building an economy, an education system, a public safety system, and a, and a, a health care system where people aren't afraid to enter those uh, venues with child. We need to make having a child a blessing, not a curse. And we need to make sure that when people do uh, get, in, uh, get pregnant, that they're not, quote, in trouble, but they are blessed with a child and they're eager to have that child. So just going back to kind of like a legislative view, if you were governor one day, do you think, so you don't think there should be a law uh, that gives exceptions for rape and incest? I think that it's something that we certainly need to discuss and we need to add it to the discussion because as a, my personal opinion is this, if I was a pastor who was counseling a young person or anyone who had who was in that position, I would urge that person to keep their child. But in the end, that decision is going to have to be that person's if, if, if abortion is legal. I feel the same way in the law. Now, the reason why I say that I, I, I don't want this push to the forefront is because of the, the issue that we're at, where we're at right now. We're talking about the issue of rape and incest right now. That is not the major, that is not what we're talking about when we talk about abortion on demand in this country. Abortion has become a form of birth control all the way up to late-term abortion. That is the issue here, and we need to focus on that. We need to get folks to understand that you can, you know, you should not be getting pregnant of your own volition and then simply uh, killing this baby because you don't want to be bothered with it or you can't have time to have this baby or you don't feel like it's going to fit in your lifestyle. Um, that is that is the major issue with abortion. Uh, the, the the small minority of abortions that are carried out because of rape and incest, of course, we need to sit down and have a healthy discussion of how that can be handled or whether that should be legal. And I believe there's an argument for it to be. But uh, we need to deal with that larger issue first. And that larger issue is this, the, the callous way that abortions are carried out on demand. Do, do you really feel that women are having uh, abortions late in their pregnancy for birth control reasons, is that fair? Abortions are, are carried out for a myriad of reasons. But again, we've set a standard in this country where abortion is being used as birth control. We can I don't believe we should allow that. 
Okay, so a quick timeout to unpack some of the things that the lieutenant governor just said. First, I was wrong. Robinson did mention his wife's abortion in his book. It was a brief paragraph, and Robinson writes that they made the wrong choice, and that's why they are, quote, adamantly pro-life today. And as you heard, the lieutenant governor said abortion has become a form of birth control. North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services data show that in 2020, 50% of people who had an abortion said it was their first one. 23.5% had had one previous abortion, about 10% had two, and 5.7% had three or more. 11% are unknown. The Guttmacher Institute, which advocates for abortion rights, reports that in 2014 it found that 51% of women who had an abortion said they used birth control in the month before they got pregnant. We also want to provide some clarity on North Carolina's abortion law in light of Robinson's, quote, abortion on demand comment. North Carolina prohibits abortions after 20 weeks. This is a recent change. It used to be viability, generally 24 weeks, before the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. There's also a 72-hour waiting period after a state-required ultrasound. This was the case before the court's decision. People under 18 must have parental consent to get an abortion. Nationwide, nearly half the states don't have a mandatory waiting period. And according to the CDC, less than 1% of abortions nationwide in 2019 occurred after 21 weeks of pregnancy. Now, uh, Lieutenant Governor, I'll, I'll switch gears for just a little bit. You are a black conservative. Uh, do you feel like you get more criticism because of your race and that a, a white conservative wouldn't receive as much scrutiny? Uh, no, I think it's about it's about the same. It just comes in different forms. Um, you know, I, I get it from uh, both ends, so to speak. It's just, uh, uh, but I don't think I receive any more scrutiny than others. As a matter of fact, in some places, I receive a little less scrutiny because uh, there are some issues that uh, that that uh, white uh, liberals or, or leftists are actually afraid to broach uh, with uh, with black conservatives because they don't want that conversation to take place. What kind of issues? I'll give you a perfect example. I, you know, I had a, an incident here where I spoke at a church in North Carolina. Uh, some folks took exceptions to the comments that I made, uh, and it was big news. It was all over the news. Uh, and then I, I made the same type of comments at another church. Uh, that went almost unnoticed. The difference was that the first church was a predominantly white church, and the second church was a predominantly black church. And uh, it showed me then that that's a conversation that folks are not ready to have. When I spoke those words uh, against the proliferation of uh, sexual immorality uh, in our schools at that predominantly white church, uh, it was it was cast as racist. It was cast as homophobic. Spoke almost the same type of words at a predominantly black church, and nobody wants to broach the subject. Why? Uh, because we don't want to think of black folks as having those opinions. And so I was largely ignored. I assume you were talking about uh, the comments you made about homosexuality, as you said, and transgenderism, your words were as being the, the filth comments. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was talking about it being taught children in schools, presented to children in schools. And uh, folks take, took great exception to it, but I stand by those comments 100%. You know, you can take, uh, you can defile the marriage bed, put it in front of children and make it filthy. I mean, it's, uh, 
You know, these, these things, there's no reason for children to ever be learning about these things. And uh, we we have stood up for that point. And we're going to continue to stand up for that point. But it was odd how it was handled in one church uh, opposed to another. The end of that speech or that was on tape was, I think you said, and yes, I called it filth. And if you don't like it that I called it filth, come see me and I'll explain it to you. So here we are. Uh, we are talking. So explain it to us. Exactly what I just said. When you take those topics, sexual topics, no matter whether it be homosexual, whether it be heterosexual, no matter what it is, when you try to present those things to children, that, that has no place being in an elementary school classroom, inside of a junior high school classroom. Those places, those things have no business there. Uh, that is the strict domain of parents. If parents wish to teach their children about those things at home, that's fine. But the school has no business. Uh, commandeering people's children, bringing them to the schoolhouse and teaching them about those topics. Uh, when you present that to minor children, it becomes filthy, no matter how, no matter how you look at it. And uh, we're not going to tolerate that here in North Carolina. We're going to push back against it uh, every time. And I'm going to continue to speak out against it. Now, Lieutenant Governor, I, in the book uh, I, I was reading, and you, you talk about these topics, but the language in the book was dialed down a bit. Um, many people at the time said that was hateful language, but in the book, I didn't see the word filth. It didn't seem as impactful. Have you moderated your position or, or, or trying to moderate it all? No, no. It, when I was speaking in the church, uh, I was speaking, uh, first off, when I was speaking in the church, I was sp speaking from a spiritual standpoint, which is completely different from political or something that I would put out in a, uh, in a, in an autobiography, uh, so it was a completely different context. But again, I don't back off of those comments a bit, not one bit. And I can prove to you that it's filthy. And I proved to them that it was filthy because when I presented the news media with the pictures, some of the pictures that I was referring to, they blurted out on their news cameras. They would not present to their adult viewers, but they expect the children of North Carolina and other states to be exposed to this garbage. So, yes. I referred to it as filth, and I'm going to continue to refer to it as that because that's what it is. And that was the and illustrative. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely. And apparently the news media agrees with it because it was filthy enough for them to blur it out on their news cameras. And so that was the, the, the graphic novel Gender Queer, I think, right? That one among others. Going back to the issue with what you've, some of the sermons or what you've said in churches, have you spoken after that? There was a lot of controversy. Have you spoken with kind of LGBT activists and officials to try and that you know, trying to explain I've had some, some conversations with small groups, but here's the thing I don't believe that I need to explain anything about my constitutionally guaranteed right to uh, religious speech. And here's why because I'm grown up enough to have my religious opinion, and I'm grown up enough to leave that opinion outside the door when it comes to policy because I have never advocated and I have never pushed for or supported any law that restricts the constitutional rights of anyone, ever. I've never written that down anywhere. I've never said that that's the way things should be. I, I've never advocated for that anywhere. Now, I have a governor in this state who violate constitutional rights of everybody in this state by telling us that we couldn't assemble. He did that clearly. He was, he was sued because of it, and he lost. I have an attorney general who, who refused to stand up for the law in this state, but not ever because of my political or my religious or social opinions have I ever advocated for the violation of anyone's constitutional rights. My religious opinion is mine, and I'm allowed to have that religious opinion. And, you know, it's funny. I'm called to task on that, but others, other religions are not. And I'm trying to figure out why. <laughs> 
Well, I, I mean, I read the book and you, you talked about just now, like you're not trying to take anyone's rights. Now you did say you don't believe, uh, you know, you believe marriage is between a man and a woman, but you said that uh, gay people should be entitled to the same rights, legal rights as others. Why not in some of those church speeches, why not kind of say that? I mean, you could, you know, you had your point about these materials you felt weren't appropriate, but why not kind of tell the congregation? Why not carry them along those views? Because probably some of the people in that church no. may not agree with that. Do you see what I'm saying? No, no, because marriage is between one man and one woman. When I'm standing in that pulpit, I'm a representative of, of not the government and I'm not a representative of some pop culture uh, ideology. I'm a representative of what God's word said. And God's word said marriage is between one man and one woman. And when we're in that pulpit, that's what we're going to say. Oh, I mean, but I, I meant in, in terms of saying there's that, that's what you believe. But then in saying, hey, people who are who are gay, who are couples should have the, all the same legal rights as as other people. You no, know, it's funny you should say that. I've said that several times in sermons. Nobody listens to that. Well, part. right. I haven't heard that. I mean, so to be fair, because it could, <laughs> Nobody says that nobody listens to the part where I say over and over again that we don't live in a theocracy and that you have a right to do whatever you want to do inside your home and inside your bedroom. Nobody listens to that part. They only listen to the demonstrative parts that they don't like. Now a second time out here. I mentioned in the interview the book, Gender Queer, a graphic novel. It's a 2019 coming-of-age story about the author exploring their gender identity and sexuality, ultimately identifying as non-binary. There were a handful of pages that critics deem inappropriate, but the one that gets the most attention is an illustration of someone standing and wearing a strap-on penis. Another person is on their knees with their mouth over the fake penis. In Wake County, the public library briefly pulled the book, saying it contained pornography, but ultimately brought it back. We haven't found any evidence that the book is in elementary school classrooms or libraries, or that it's been part of the curriculum in middle or high schools, but it is in some high school libraries. There's a legislative proposal to prohibit schools from teaching grades K-3 through about sexual orientation or gender identity. It's similar to a Florida law that critics call the Don't Say Gay Bill. In North Carolina, it passed the Senate, but House leadership has put the bill on hold because supporters don't have the votes to override a potential veto from Governor Cooper. Critics say it will stifle any discussion about the way some children see themselves or from discussing that their parents may be gay or transgender. In the book, there was one line um, that you mentioned. You were talking about supporting the Republican Party, and you wrote, quote, show me in history where the Democratic Party did anything, any pure and good for black folks. And so I read that. My, my mind immediately went to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. <laughs> Is that a fair point? No, it's not a fair point. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 would not have been uh, possible without the support and of Republicans. And it would not have been necessary had it not been for the Democratic Party taking away the constitutional rights that had been guaranteed to black folks after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period. The Civil Rights Act of, 19, of 1964 was nothing but an attempt by Democrats to buy votes from black folks by restoring rights that should have never been taken away. It was not, it is not there because of Democrats. It is there because Republicans joined in and helped to restore the rights they had given black folks after the Civil War. The true civil rights movement happened after the Civil War during Reconstruction, and it was wiped away by Democrats through Jim Crow and the laws thereof. So no, 
I don't. I still stand by that statement. But on you the flip side, one time when they did something through pure means, and I'll give you ten bucks. Well, but on the flip side, on that issue, now that was a Democratic president, Lyndon Johnson. The Democrats controlled the House and the Senate. Uh, mm-hmm. Republicans did vote for the bill, but the most Democrats did too. I mean, and the, and the Republican nominee at the time who'd run for president was against it. And again, I want you to go back and I want you to read the statement in the book again and tell me uh, what it cost Democrats to do that and what they were seeking to gain. We're talking about a president, Lyndon Johnson, who purported, said that his programs were meant to get the Negro vote for the next 200 years. We're talking about a a, a president, Lyndon Johnson, who started a, a great society program, which literally destroyed the black family in America, replaced the black father with a welfare check. Again, I would submit to you the Democratic Party in this nation has never given black folks anything, but at its its inception, slave chains and slave shacks. And then during the 1960s, gave us welfare in the ghetto. Now, but I I think this is interesting. So I want to kind of go back on on this one with you. I mean, the Democrats passed that bill and it cost them. They lost voters throughout the South who went to the Republican Party. I mean, they went in the wilderness they lost presidential elections in 1968, 1972, 1980, 84. I mean, a lot of people feel like passing that bill cost them dearly. I don't care what it cost. It never would have been necessary had it not been for their party. Removing, again, removing the constitutional rights of black people that was given to them after the Civil War. But so it, don't, we don't want to... I don't want folks talking to me about how great the Democratic Party is because they un, uh, set up a bill that undid all the uh, almost 90 years of misery that they caused people under Jim Crow. But is it fair to say those people were dead who repealed and repealed Reconstruction and roll back? Is it fair to compare Democrats in 1964 to dead Democrats in 1875? Yeah. It's fair to compare their, it's fair to compare what they were trying to do. The Democratic Party was trying to reform itself to try to regain power once again and to try to hold on to their power because they could see it slipping away. They could see that if the, if black folks continued to vote Republican, if they stayed in the Republican Party, they could gain enough votes and they could gain enough power in Washington, D.C. and within their states to finally put Jim Crow to bed and crush it underfoot for all time. They could not have that. They had to find another way. And so they had to make concessions. They were not doing what they did for black folks. They were doing what they did for the Democratic Party. All right. I want to switch switch gears for you, going back to that Greensboro speech uh, about gun rights. Is the, is the second the most, is that the most important constitutional the, amendment to you? No. It's not. It, it, you can't really narrow down which one is most important. Any without the others is, is, is incomplete. That's like saying which one is more important, your heart or your or your, your brain. You you know you, you really can't live without either. Um, so it's it. You know the the second uh, the first supports the second. The second supports the first, and then all the others support uh, all of them. They all work in conjunction. Take out any of them and the Constitution is incomplete. Take out any of the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights is incomplete. So it's not necessarily important, but it does point out the fact that the Constitution is under attack. And I think when you when you attack anything, you attack at its weakest, most vulnerable point. And our most vulnerable points right now 
are free speech and the right to bear arms. And that's what's being attacked the most. So how is free speech, um, how is free speech being attacked? Oh, jeez. I guess I, I mean, I cancel on. culture, is that, I mean, is that what you're going Absolutely. Going? Cancel culture, social media. I mean, come on. I mean, it's all over. It's rampant. You know, you can't speak your mind anymore without being canceled or fired or, or purged or, or doxxed. It's ridiculous. Now, the flip side, Lieutenant Governor, is that social media and kind of speaking your mind, that has made you who you are. It, it kind of launched you into kind of outer space, so to speak. I mean, that on the trajectory. People have tried to cancel you, probably, but they haven't. So is it is it as big of a problem as as you feel and others feel? Absolutely. It's a huge problem. And it's, it hasn't ended yet. It hasn't ended yet. It's just getting started. And, uh, you know, we, uh, social media is one of the venues we use. And we use a number of venues to get our message out. But you make no mistake about this. Jesus Christ changed the whole world on the back of a donkey. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have CNN or satellite TV. What we rely on is our faith. We rely on our faith in him to continue to guide us, to to deliver the truth where, as we see fit and as, as he sees fit. And uh, that's where our real uh, strength and our real power comes from. So what's being done? To, I mean, I, what's being done to you? Can you tell me efforts that oh, you feel like to silence we, you? You know, we, we've been Facebook jailed. We've been uh, shadow banned. Uh, we've been un- attacked unfairly because of our words. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's a combination of all of those things. And those folks that uh, those en- the enemies of freedom, uh, you go back and you study history. They're a very crafty bunch of people. They attack from all sides with a variety of tools. And uh, before you can speak up and say what hits you, you don't know what what one to call out first. But again, make no mistake about it. No matter what they do to us, we're going to continue to speak up and not be afraid. So in writing the book, uh, was this kind of p- to prepare for a run for governor in 2024? I mean, a lot of politicians do this. Barack Obama did. No, I had I, this uh, this book. I, I wrote this manuscript a couple of years ago by happenstance. I was connected with uh, a publisher uh, who looked at the manuscript, liked it, and the timeline just uh, turned out like it was. Uh, but this book is in no way, shape, or form intended to be any type of precursor to running for any office. I wrote this book and put this book out to let people know who I am because one thing that I'm tired of, I'm tired of other people uh, trying to tell folks' story. Uh, you know, Republicans let the news media tell their story instead of telling it themselves. Uh, we decided to put something out to tell our story so people would know who we are. So did you write, did you start writing it before you were elected or was it just right after you came into office, started knocking it out? I think it was slightly before I was in office when I started writing. Uh, I started writing uh, I can't remember. It was definitely before I was elected. Uh, I think it might have been shortly. It was shortly after I started out in the primaries when I started the process of writing the manuscript. So you said it's not setting the stage to run for governor, but it's definitely something that you are considering in two years, right? Sure. Some Republicans, you hear chatter that they would like you to run for Congress instead, maybe carve out a safe seat that would be, you're shaking your head. Not on the radar. Not on the radar at all. Uh, no plans to go to Washington, D.C., no thoughts going to Washington, D.C. In fact, uh, the thought of it uh, makes my stomach a little uneasy. <laughs> so why, why does it make your stomach uneasy? That's not something I've ever considered doing. Uh, I, don't think that, uh, I don't think that that's uh, part of the plan for me. 
is to go to Washington, D.C. and work inside those circles. That's uh, for someone else. So it will be Governor Abbas then, right? Um, we don't know. You know, who knows what it may be. A big controversy or a big issue in the Republican Party is the president's, the 2020 election, the presidential election. Um, mm-hmm. Did President Biden win that? Is he the legitimate president? Did he win fair and square? I don't, I don't have all the information laying in front of me, so I can't say yes or no, but I can tell you this. And this is what I tell everybody. In, in 2020, Republicans said that there was problems with our election system. 2016, Democrats said there was problems with our election system. Both sides have, admit, have admitted openly that there's problems with our election system. It's time for both sides to stop being childish, put the foolishness aside, sit down at the table together and fix the problem, to fix the problem, hash out what's wrong, hash out what we believe the problems are and fix it because election integrity is not a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. It is an issue that affects this republic. Our democratic process is the linchpin of this constitutional republic. And without it, this constitutional republic cannot stand. It's time for Americans to come together and fix that issue. Stop playing these silly games and sit down at the table like adults and fix this problem for future generations. If we don't do it, we're going to be very sorry. So you would refer to the, to Joe Biden. He's Mr. President. Is that right? I, I don't refer to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not doing a good enough job for me to refer to him as the president of the United States. Well, that's that's a that that's a pretty intense statement. And some people it I is, and it's and we're under in very, very intense circumstances in this nation right now. Our border is wide open. Inflation is out of control. And our enemies are emboldened like never before because of the weakness of President Joe Biden. So, now, yes. I mean, a lot of some people on the left felt that way about President Trump and they and received they a lot of to say whatever they wanted to say about. It. And they received a lot of criticism for that. For, Not from me. They did. So you were OK. But they also you were saying. You have to remember, we, we live in a country where there was a time where we burned the presidents in effigy. And sometimes local politicians were tarred and feathered and run out of town. So I think we've come a long way. So. Lieutenant Governor, if you are elected governor, so January 2025, what do you, what's what's first on your agenda? What's second? What's third? Very first thing on our agenda, keep the economy of North Carolina, keep it ramping up, keep it moving forward under progressive, or not under progressive, but under a conservative a leadership uh, through conservative principles. And the second thing on that agenda that's going to fire that economy get our education system back to a place where we're no longer indoctrinating our kids, but where we're educating our kids, where our kids can read and write and do mathematics. And we're setting them up for success outside the classroom, not just setting them in a placeholder uh, so we can continue to get dollars for the bureaucracy. Now, the issue of education, you talk about that in the book. Um, and at some point you mentioned low test scores um, and you feel like it's, it's the results if you feel like the Democratic establishment not focusing on the fundamentals. But then the flip side, there is a problem with test scores throughout the country. I mean, there are places with Republican governors, Republican legislatures, Republican school boards, and that problem still exists. I mean, is there a place you can point to that says, this is what we need to do? They've, they've raised test scores. This is, this is the model to follow. No, no, I'm not looking for anybody's model to follow. I think following models is what's got us here. 
we have to be uh, we have to be inventive when it comes to to finding the fix for these problems. But also in being inventive, we've got to go back to some of the time honored things that we have abandoned. Uh, many of the things we've aban abandoned in our state of North Carolina that our superintendent is trying to get back to coupling that with some new techniques that we've learned over the years to make sure that our children have what they need. And, and uh, the essentials, the absolute essentials is the reading, writing, and mathematic uh, component. We have uh, left much of that. Uh, we have uh, abandoned much of that uh, in favor of other programs. We need to get back to those essentials. Uh, and make sure that our children have that solid base of education because those three things are the, are the base of education. I guess I just, my question was, I, like I said, there are places where Republicans are in control and uh, from the state level to the school board. And mm -hmm. I assume they've tried that, right? I, I assume they have. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know. You'd have to give me, we'd have to look at specific examples, but I'm not looking at any other state. I'm not looking at any other program. What I'm looking at is North Carolina. I'm looking at folks in North Carolina that I know are talented people who want to do the right thing, who have the great ideas, who have those great principles. I'm looking to bring those people to the table to build a, a successful education program in North Carolina. I'm not interested in looking at the failures of other states. I'm interested in looking at the potential successes of what can happen here in North Carolina. Uh, you're on the State Board of Education. Critical race theory comes up a lot in terms of political circles. Democrats say it's not being taught, that it's overblown, that this is a uh, pretend issue. Um, mm -hmm. I, I assume you feel otherwise, right? <laughs> well, see, that's the problem with critical race theory. Critical race theory is not a book. Critical race theory is not uh, a volume of encyclopedias that sits on a shelf. Critical race theory is just that. It's a theory. It's a line of thought. It's a way of thinking. It's very hard to get a handle on. I describe it as this uh, black sludge that when you try to grab it, remove it, it slips through your fingers and you open up your hands and it leaves a nasty stain. Uh, it's not something that we can quickly remove uh, because it's almost, uh, not, it's not something that you can literally put your hands on. Uh, what we have to do uh, to combat uh, critical race theory is, is understand what it is, understand its languages, understand it inside the curriculum when we see it. And uh, we have to move that out in favor of, of things that actually work and things that quite frankly are actually the truth instead of just some theory. Are there parts though of American history in terms of how African-Americans were treated that haven't been taught and should be? No, no. I learned I learned uh, things about history, the hard facts about history and slavery in school uh, throughout throughout my school. I can remember distinctly having uh, broad, uh, open conversations in in, in uh, classes in junior high school and in high school about those tough issues. Uh, it's, there's nothing that's being hidden from folks, and there's nothing that's being, uh, quote, whitewashed in, anymore. And it's not a, even a matter of whitewashing anything. You cannot teach American history without teaching about the bad things that have happened because bad things have happened. And here's the thing that confounds me more than anything. Whenever we bring this issue up, the folks always say that we want to remove these things from the history book. Show me where we want to remove these things from the history book. What we want to do is we want to teach the folks open and honestly. And more importantly, what we want to do is show how in America, People who want to do the right thing 
of all colors and all religions, they always come together to fight for the greater good. That's what really unifies us as Americans, that at every turn in this country when there was trouble, whether it be slavery, whether it be the fight for, for women's rights, there were people there of every color there fighting together for what was right. That's what we need to be teaching our young people. But we're not. We're too busy trying to divide them by color and by race, by sexual identity. Uh, we see it all the time. We've got to stop doing that. We've got to start teaching people that in this country, we fought for right together and we've won those rights together. And uh, the further we go on in this nation, if we continue to do that, I think the closer we'll come. I'll ask one more about that. We talked. I think most kids are taught about the Civil War. Uh, I think that's a pretty safe statement to say. But you talked about Reconstruction earlier. Yes, uh, that how African-Americans were given rights and those were taken away. Mm-hmm. I, I'll say from my personal experience that that probably there's much less of an emphasis placed on reconstruction than the civil war. Okay. So is that one where there needs to be a little, you know, absolutely. And that, you know, when that happened, that, that, that started happening. And I hate to say this, that started happening when politics entered into the classroom. Because then you've got to get into this thing where you've got to tell young people that it was Republicans that gave black people the right to vote. And it was Republicans that guaranteed them equal protection under the law. And it was Republicans who guaranteed them uh, 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 that ended slavery. And it was Republicans who pushed the 19th Amendment, who gave women the right to vote. Even in the state of North Carolina, they refer to the redeemers who came and burned and bombed and beat their way back into the South. Those people were called redeemers. In our own North Carolina History uh, Museum, they reserved, uh, refer to those people as conservatives, not as redeemers, as the true history states they are. So you're absolutely right. There are things in this, this nation that we need to be taught. And again, I believe if we teach them and teach the truth, we're going to see a complete repudiation of things like critical race theory. Are there any issues that you can work with liberals on? Absolutely. Absolutely. The question is, are there any issues they can work with me on? In North Carolina, we've proven that not to be the case. Lieutenant Governor, thank you so much for taking time with us. I I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. So that was Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Before this interview, um, his communications people had said we might have 20 to 25 minutes. We ended up going a lot longer than that. I have a feeling the lieutenant governor might have kept going. What'd you guys think? You know, I think nobody can accuse him of being a namby-pamby politician. <laughs> you know, he says what he he says what he believes. Um, you know, his supporters are going to find a lot to like in what he says, and his critics critics are going to find an awful lot to dislike. And yet, I found that he was moderating. Even during the interview, I mean, I think if you look at what he said before, for example, abortion is murder. His discussion of abortion was much more nuanced, much more, you know, it's a personal issue. And that's not what we've heard from him before. So I think he's already running for governor, despite what he says. And, uh, you know, on school issues, too, I thought he was moderating. He I think he called filth. I think he called transgenderism and homosexuality filth. And then now it's also heterosexuality books that are, you know, show too much. I, I think he's, I mean, he does what politicians do. He's, he can't afford to be that bomb thrower that he's been up to now. Yeah, he talked about abortion and he made, made it clear that it was just his opinion. But, and he said his opinion would add to the, the discussion as if 
he's open to other ideas, but I don't think he's clearly open to other ideas on abortion. Yeah, there wasn't uh, I, I, that that struck me, too, that he seemed to, to dial back slightly on that issue and saying, oh, that's just my opinion, because there were very few other instances where there was that pullback, so to speak. It was interesting, too, when you ask him about the Democratic Party and, you know, what the Democratic Party has done for civil rights. And, and he said what he did. I, I think it was he was pretty clearly conflating the Reconstruction Democratic Party with the later Civil Rights Democratic Party. And, you know, it was Democratic President Johnson who who pushed for the Voting Rights Act in 1965, a year after the Civil Rights Bill. And in, in passing that, uh, when that was passed, he said, this will cost us the South for generations. So I think it's disingenuous to say that Democrats didn't do much for civil rights. I think that was the headline out of the interview. I think, Steve, you really did a great job getting him, drawing him out on that. And he said some things that, I mean, he he once wanted to be a history teacher, but I mean, African-Americans who could vote started voting Democratic in the New Deal and for John F. Kennedy uh, prior to the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. So I, I think the stronger argument from him, and I think you're going to hear this when he runs, is that, hey, Democrats take you for granted you know, fellow African-Americans, because I think he can get some African-American votes, but not with not with the idea that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were just ways to get the Democrats uh, more votes because it did. It cost them the South and it also uh, made the Republican Party the party of the South, which is a great thing to have in terms of electoral votes if you can count on a solid South. So, right. The Southern strategy, yeah, Nixon's Southern exactly. strategy really came into focus yeah. three years later, four years later, and it gave the Republicans a near lock on the White House for a generation. And and Jim, to your point, President Johnson realized that and still forged ahead. You know, the Voting Rights Act in 1965 made it possible for thousands of African-Americans to hold public office since then, too, including him. So um, it's it's a uh, it's hard to believe that you can say Democrats didn't do anything for civil rights. I think that will do it for today's show. Um, for Steve Harrison with WFAE and Tim Funk and Jim Morrill, this is Inside Politics Election 2022. We'll be back in two weeks. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.